Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, if you're visiting online, we're glad to have you. I pray that it would be a blessing to you and that just as we hope to encounter God, I pray that you would encounter God this morning. You've already heard uh, through both Jennifer and through Peter that we are starting a new series at the moment. Uh, and, and you're going to hear a couple of expressions almost repeated over the next few weeks, uh, hopefully the next few months. Uh, one of those expressions that we will probably repeat and use a couple of times, certainly from the pulpit, is the, the expression, seeking revival. Uh, now, there is a lot that I want to say about that. Uh, and I want to say it all at the same time. But I know I can't. I know that revival is not going to happen if I try and preach at you for three hours. That, that's, that's, in fact, that's probably going to kill it. Uh, you know, when, when I read about the history of revival and have a look at the different revivals that have taken place, when, when I kind of ask why they happened and how they happened and the way they happened and, and sort of that history nerd in me sort of goes, well, if, if we just focus on that and we do that, there we go. But I'm aware that's not really uh, what it is and, and how it happens. I know that when I use that term, seeking revival, that brings probably different images to each one of us. In fact, when I say seeking revival, some of you are picturing a huge marquee tent in the parking lot filled with like 800 people, you know, every night of the month with some just super engaging, just charismatic evangelist up front calling people to repent and, and there, you know, a hundred baptisms. Now that would be awesome. Don't get me wrong. That would be awesome. But that's not revival. That is one of the byproducts of revival. In and of itself, that is not revival. Uh, revive or revival simply means to bring back to life, to resuscitate. If a body collapses because of cardiac arrest or something like that, and that body is knocking on death's door, uh, when that body is brought back through CPR or, or through whatever it is resuscitated, that's revival. That body in and of itself could not bring itself back to life. It needed something else. It needed help to get there. Revival is when the people of God when disciples, when those who call Jesus Christ Lord, realize and acknowledge, wait a minute, we've stagnated. It's almost like there's no more life left in us, and we need God to interact. We need God to revive us. It's kind of that image in, in Revelation and where, where we, we get the letters to the different churches and, and God speaks to the church in Ephesus. And as he speaks to this church in Ephesus, he says to them, you have forgotten your first love. You've lost your first love. Return. Come back to that first love. That's revival. When people return to God. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And just kind of like a diamond with all these different facets, over the next few weeks, I'm going to try and pull in all those different connections around revival into that so that we can see and get this glimpse of what is God wanting to do in our midst. 
Now, what I will say, and you heard it alluded to uh, during this morning already, revival does not happen until the people of God acknowledge they need it. And then when the people of God acknowledge they need it, the people of God fall to their knees and they pray. The people of God realize they need God to move, and so they cry out to God. And so that's what we're hoping to, to look at. I, I wonder, though, if maybe part of our problem is we live in a time in history and certainly a place in history where if you want something, whatever that something is, you can go out and get it. We have access to everything and anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed when I go to Walmart, you know, and you stroll through Walmart, and I'm like, is there nothing, or is there anything, sorry, that Walmart does not stock? I kind of feel like there is nothing, because even if the store doesn't physically have it, Walmart online probably does. And so we can, we stroll through these places where we can get whatever we want, whenever we want. You know, imagine for a moment, you know, I know we couldn't do this, but imagine for a moment bringing a peasant or, or even royalty from like 800 AD, you know, and we could somehow get, a, get somebody from that era and we could transport them and we took them to Costco. Could you just imagine? Like the spice aisle alone would bring them to tears. Like these are products that people have to sail for months to get. And then they've got to try and keep them, you know, fresh and stored on their ships as they sail back. You and I can realize, oh, I don't have any curry. Let me pop out to the store and back home in 10 minutes with my tub of curry. Boom. Like, we, we can get whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. In fact, we can get whatever we want, wherever we want, sent to us. We don't even have to leave the house. Like, there's a part of me that goes, thank God for Amazon. That probably saved many of your Christmases this year as you were trying to find gifts for family and friends. We can get whatever we want, and so we kind of have this, this sense as we come into our journey with God, as we come into this place of discipleship, and we struggle with this idea that we need God. Because really, we can, if I need something, I can go and get it. Why do I need God? And this is what revival is. It's us waking up to the fact that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. Nothing of eternal value, nothing of significance. And the only way we can achieve that is when God moves within us. When God restores us and God revives us. You know, the Bible gives a, a great illustration, and it's one we're going to read in, in just a couple of moments. It's something we've alluded to again, even in the songs we sung this morning. You know, the Bible speaks of God being the source of living water. Christ calls himself, we'll touch on that in a moment as well, he is living water. If we're thirsty, we go to him. But the problem is, we don't. We don't rely on living water. We don't rely on those streams of life. Instead, we build cisterns in our house and we store our own water. Brackish, stale, old water. And we think that's good enough. You know, if you don't know that image, in certainly in the biblical times, water was scarce. 
in the, the Middle East, which was generally sort of arid desert, yes, they have a rainy season, uh, but the most of the year it's dry. And so what would happen is during the rainy season, people would collect their rainwater. And to store it, they would build these cisterns generally under their house or somewhere in their home. And they would build a brick, uh, if you were wealthy, a marble cistern where they would put the water in it. And hopefully that water would last them through the summer. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you, leaving water in a brick sort of thing under your house is not the source of really great water. It's, it's not going to taste all that good. It's probably not going to be cool and refreshing. In fact, occasionally, if you built your cistern wrong, it would develop a crack, and you would get down there one day to discover that things leaked, and you no longer have water. But isn't that such a beautiful image and illustration of our own lives? How we think we don't need God, because we can do what we want. We'll build it in our house, and we'll go to it there. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. And we're going to read just a couple of verses from Jeremiah 2 in a moment. They'll be up on the, the screen as well. But as we read through these verses, I want you to see there are three warnings that God gives the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. And there are three warnings that I think we can take out of this passage as we come into this idea of seeking revival, of crying out to God to restore us, to revive us, to reawaken us, I think there are three warnings that come out. Let's have a look at them this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2, reading from verse 4 through to verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I, this is God, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land. And made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? You know, as we read those couple of verses from that prophecy of Jeremiah, God speaking to the nation of Israel, I think there are a couple of, of warnings that, that we find out of there, that we, we derive. Uh, contextually, just before we look at those, uh, the context of that passage, God is clearly angry with Israel. God is angry with the nation that he has chosen, that he has called to himself, that he has carried and taken out of slavery, and he's brought them into a fertile land. God did this, but yet they've turned from God. And that image, that metaphor, they've turned from the source of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns. And I wonder if maybe for some of us, we look at our lives here and now, and we wonder, why, why am I in this drama? Why am I in this problem? Why, why is this area of my life crumbling and falling apart? Why does it feel barren? And in a sense, why does it feel dead? And I think when we read Jeremiah, one of the answers is because we've abandoned the source of living water. We've walked away from God. We've rejected God. Oh, sure, we might claim Jesus is Lord, but we're functionally agnostics because we trust in ourselves. We do it ourselves. We live by that mantra, if it's to be, it's up to me. I don't need God. And God warns his children and warns his people. If you want to experience living water, don't turn to your own cisterns. I think there are three warnings, three things that these cisterns speak of in this passage of Jeremiah. And so I'm going to start with some beware ofs, and then we'll end with, with that focus on revival. The first warning that I think we see in this passage is beware of the cistern, the broken cistern, of humanism. I'll explain that in a moment. But beware of the broken cistern of humanism. Jeremiah writes and gives word to God when he says, This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? You see, the Israelites had become really comfortable in their ability to thrive in this promised land. They had become really comfortable in, in their ability to do what needed to be done to receive what they wanted to receive. And so in that comfort, they began to forget that, hold on, the only reason we're in this promised land is because God brought us in. The only reason we were able to defeat some of these enemies is because God helped us. But over time, they slowly started to think, we're powerful. We did this on our own. We, we can rely on ourselves. We, we don't need God. And they took for granted what God had done. You know, one of the, the definitions of humanism is this. Humanism is a system of thought that rejects religious beliefs and centers on humans and their values, capacities, and worth. And this is what Israel were functionally doing. They were rejecting God. You know, in, in our everyday world, the, the illustration of this would be the illustration of plagiarism. 
Um, I know many of you know that I'm doing a couple of courses at Cary at the moment, finishing off my MDiv, and, and every single course begins with like a three-page warning about plagiarism. If you try to pass off something as your own and you do not acknowledge, you do not give credit, that's plagiarism. And if, if you're guilty of plagiarism, you fail. You make life really difficult for yourself. But this is what Israel have done with God. They're passing off as their own work what God had done. And so, in that sense, they, they take credit for God's work, and they reject God. Beware of that broken system of cistern of saying, I don't need God. I'm, I'm all that I need. But there's not only the broken system of, uh, of humanism. The second warning that I think Jeremiah gives us is the broken cistern of materialism. And when Jeremiah says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruits and rich produce, but you came in and defiled my land and made an inheritance detestable. I like the way Eugene Peterson has written this in the message. Uh, Eugene Peterson has translated verse 7 as this. He says, I brought you into a garden land where you could eat lush fruit, but you barged in and polluted my land trashed and defiled my dear land. This is what, is what God says to Israel. I gave this as a gift, but you've barged in. You've defiled it. You've polluted it. You've taken this precious gift and you've exploited it, corrupting it, making it your own and ignoring where it comes from. You know, when I use the word materialism, Materialism is defined as a doctrine that the only or the highest value or objectives lie in material well-being and the furtherance of material progress. Materialism says these things will save me. These things are all I need. Whether it's, it's money or possessions or whatever the case might be, if I have enough of that, well, then I'm okay. My friends, I want you to know, there are some significantly wealthy people in this world, millionaires and even billionaires. And when you ask them, how much money is enough? Almost all of them will say to you, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Because that's the problem with our material possessions. We never have enough. We need more. We need bigger. And, and we see the effects of this on, on our environment. We see the effects of this in our own lives. As people pursue, people try and amass. And in that pursuing, in that amassing, so our consumer debt rises, our anxiety rises, our stress levels rise, because we're trying to get more and more. Because we think that's what will save us. That's what will help us. You know, I love the fact that when the Bible speaks about materialism, it also gives the antidote to materialism. The Bible makes it clear that the way we overcome materialism is through generosity. It's through giving. Now, now don't hear me wrong. I, I'm not preaching a sermon on, hey, if you want to be blessed by God, you should give to your church. No. What God says is, if you want to be released from that pursuit of materialism, then hold loosely and learn to bless Learn to give. Learn to share with those in need. 
That's how we overcome this danger of materialism. I wonder if for many of us this is probably one of our biggest struggles. Because we live in a world that is so consumed by the things we have. We think we need more because more will save us. And so God says, be aware, beware of the broken cistern of materialism. And then the last warning that Jeremiah gives is, beware of the broken cistern of idolatry. In verse 11, God says, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. It's clear that as God's speaking to Israel, he's horrified. If I can use that kind of human emotion sense. God's looking at this nation going, what are you doing? You have God. The one true, the only God. And you've replaced it for things made by human hands. Or you've replaced it by things that I've made. You've replaced me with idols. Now I know that quite often when, when preachers preach through this idea, they might put materialism and idolatry together, and, and I get that. Uh, but I think we need to separate them. A couple of years ago, you know, things like um, atheism were on the rise. And the world kind of felt like, yeah, religion it will just fade out and disappear. Let me tell you, atheism now is on the decline. People are spiritual beings. People are aware that there is a spiritual nature, there's a spiritual reality, and, and they're trying to connect with that. And they're trying to fill it with all sorts of things. With all sorts of idols. We live in a pluralistic culture. And certainly sometimes we, we're afraid to speak against it because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to upset anyone. But this is what God says. You've replaced me, the true and glorious God, with an idol, with a false God, with a demon masquerading as an angel of light. And it's not just people outside of the church. It happens with people, with Christians in the church as well. Because we don't understand the Word of God. And we're looking for something to solve a pain or a hurt or a problem or an experience we're going through. I was, I was so saddened just a few weeks ago where someone I know and we're, we're connected on Facebook. She goes to a church and, and she's a Christian. And her father passed away. And of course, that's, that's tragic. That's sad. And, and we, we, we mourn in the midst of that. And in her desperation for closure and in her desperation, she started posting on these Facebook groups where uh, there were mediums, you know, people who speak with the dead. And she was asking if someone would be able to get word from her father for her. And I, and I, I wept at that because I'm like, the Bible's very clear. That, that's not true. That whatever comes back, that's not your father. And of course, the, the absurdity is there were people responding to this post. And the, the so-called mediums all said, we only give a reading if you pay. And so there in the midst of hurt, in the midst of pain, someone's being exploited. But someone who should know what the Word of God says 
And so let's not assume, let's not say that idolatry simply happens out there. We are occasionally guilty of idolatry ourselves. God says, don't replace me with with those idols. Come to me, the source of life, because I am your only hope. You know, when John Calvin uh, wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is kind of an, a, a uh, I guess, a, a foundational teaching for Christians. If you want to discover what Christianity is and you want to understand the different doctrines and the things that we believe as Christians. And so he writes this huge book. But in the middle of the book, he asks this question, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer he gives is simply this. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong, body, soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. My only hope is Jesus Christ. It's not myself. It's not my wealth. It's not some idol that pretends to help. It is God alone. Our cisterns are broken. Many of us don't even realize they're empty. And we're trying to fill them up and we're trying to find help and hope in everything outside of the one source of living water. I'm sure many of you know that story in the New Testament of Jesus at the well in the middle of the hot day and and a woman comes to the well in midday. And we know this woman has a past and there's a story There's history in her life, and she comes out, and Jesus engages with her and starts speaking with her. And and it's recorded in in, uh, in verse 9 of John chapter 4. This woman is surprised, and she says, you know, what are you doing talking to me? And John gives a parenthesis because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. So she says, what are you doing with me? For you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? And in verse 10, Jesus replies, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And then just a few verses later in verse 14, Jesus says, Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. And of course, Jesus is not talking about physical thirst. Jesus is using the metaphor that when we thirst for for God, when we thirst for life, when we thirst for hope, Jesus says, those who drink from me will never be thirsty again because it will become a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. My brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are in your journey with God. And as Peter used that illustration of the the oasis, of that living water in the middle of the desert, yes, indeed, we're all over the, the show. I loved um, Peter's careful choice of words because he should have really said, you know, we're over the hill. And he didn't. I think he missed an opportunity there. But many of us are. We feel like we're over the hill. There's no hope for us. There's no help for us. We cannot get. There's nothing for us. Yet Jesus says there is. There is an oasis, a source of living eternal water. And we're invited by God to experience that. We're invited by God to give up our hold on the things that we think will save us. 
and to trust in Him alone. Revival comes when you and I, who claim Jesus Christ as Lord, see our barrenness, our emptiness, our dryness, and we return to Him for life. Of course, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and and you wouldn't claim to be a Christian, that's the starting point. It's acknowledging that He is the only one who is your source of hope and life in this life and the life to come. And I would invite you, I would encourage you, I would implore you, make that decision. And then for those of us who made that decision however long ago, Let us return to the source of living water. Let us worship him and receive from him. Let's pray together. My heavenly father, my gracious God, I come before you today with a sense of of brokenness. And I confess how often I, I turn to self-reliance. I think that I can do what needs to be done. Or worse, I turn to things as though those things will provide for me. And without realizing it, I turn them into idols and I worship them and I even sacrifice for them. And God, it's in that moment that you you challenge us. And you say we're guilty of two sins. The first is rejecting you as the source of living water. And then the second is digging my own or our own cisterns. Holy Spirit, as we have prayed this morning, so I echo, would you come and move in this place? And by your Spirit, would you help us to confess what needs to be confessed? And to once again cry out to you and to once again turn to you to find living water. God, revive our hearts again that we might worship you and we might discover you in your glory and all that you provide. For we ask in the name of the one who died for us so that we might be able to have this life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.